God's word this morning to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. For those of you visiting, um, in the summer we do a series of uh, various people, places uh, that are found in Scripture. We've been doing it alphabetically for quite a few years. This year we're on the letter R. And so we dig into God's Word in that regard. This morning uh, we are at a place, a place called Rephidim. Usually in our Sunday evening services we've been going through uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, but uh, because of where we are in the Westminster Uh, And because I will be gone next Lord's Day, it would be better for the continuity uh, to begin the next chapter, uh, next uh, the Lord's Day following, the Lord willing. So this evening, we're actually going to have a follow-up to this because we're going to move from Exodus 17 to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul, through the Spirit, makes a very pointed application or fulfillment of that which we see here. But then he uses this event at Rephidim to go on to teach the people at Corinth and to the Church of Jesus Christ today some very important uh, and necessary uh, matters for us to consider. So this morning we begin in Exodus chapter 17. Here then are the very breathed out words of God to you and to me upon this day. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. The people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the the Lord among us or not? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we pray that you will give Pastor Bob clarity of mind to teach you, to teach what you give us in your word. And open our hearts to receive these truths and apply them to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three things to look at from this passage. First of all, the complaint uh, that begins the section. Secondly, the provision that God provided for his people. But then thirdly, the shadow. 
because this too is one of those shadows that we find in the Old Testament that points us to Christ. And as I have mentioned, sometimes those shadows, uh, even in our own earthly existence here, sometimes those shadows are hard to distinguish. Sometimes it's hard to make out all of the details. Sometimes they're very clear. Depends sometimes upon the intensity of the light that is behind it. In this particular section, I think we have a very clear shadow. This is, this is, there's nothing here that, that's going to have fuzzy edges. This is a, a crystal clear shadow that God gives to us of Jesus Christ, his son and our savior. But first of all, the complaint. I want you to note that the Israelites are not wandering. There is a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that leads them and guides them as they go. This began, as we know, back in Egypt already as they left Egypt and God brings them forth by a mighty hand. God's been leading them and guiding them. They've been at a place called Mara, a place where they encountered bitter water. They came and they found uh, uh, pools of water there, but the water they were unable to drink. And so there again, they cried out to the Lord and they're angry, they're upset. The Lord provided a means of, uh, to Moses. He said, cut down some trees, throw them in the water, and the water became good to drink. But now they've moved on. How? Did they just decide? No. We are told they moved on from that place, the wilderness of sin, by stages. In other words, they're following the commandment of the Lord. They're doing that which God ordered them to do. They are moving and proceeding as God directed them to do. Part of that moving by stages then would also be moving by where the cloud and the pillar of fire take them. So understand this is God leading them. God is bringing them to this place called Rephidim. God, for his own particular purposes, God, for his own particular reasons, is bringing his people, is leading his people to this place called Rephidim. This is not an accident, right? There are no accidents. We understand the providences of God. We understand that God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. And this pillar of fire and Pillar of cloud are leading, directing them by his own presence. He's guiding them. And they come to Rephidim. But notice what the text tells us. That when they get to Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think God was surprised? Do you think they got to Rephidim and God went, Oh no, I led them here and there's no water. I didn't know that was going to happen. I, I was expecting there would be water. That, that's why I brought them to Rephidim. I, I expected there to be, be big pools of water. But there's none. Oh, now what am I going to do? No. No, God who knows all, right, knows there is no water at Rephidim. But he brings them there anyway. God brings them to this place. Where there is no life-giving water. Where there is no source 
of life. Now he sought to teach his people, you see, back at Marah. He sought to teach them that it was in him and through him and by him only that life was to come. The whole experience of the plagues back there in Egypt, the whole death of the firstborn and the necessity of the Passover lamb's blood being upon their doorposts, the whole crossing of the Red Sea, all was, was there to design, to teach them. You need to rely upon me. So he brings them to Rephidim. How are they going to respond now? Are they, are they going to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, you made bitter water sweet. We look to you. You can do that which is impossible to men. He brings them to Rephidim where there is no water. He wants them to see their need can be supplied by him alone. He wants them to understand and to recognize that the Lord is the only source of life. That they themselves cannot control this, but they are fully and wholly dependent upon him. And not just for their physical well-being but their whole existence. Especially their spiritual existence is there only because of his covenant with them. Of only because he has made covenant with them and has made covenant provisions for them. On their own, there is nothing. On their own, there is only barrenness. On their own, There is no water. God brings them to Rephidim. And there is no water. How do the people respond? Well, here's where the complaint comes up, right? The people respond not in faith and trust in God. Not even looking to Moses and say, you've done it before. We know God can use you again. No. They come with their complaint. They come with their quarreling. Verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Why do you quarrel with me and test the Lord? See, they're not looking to the Lord. They're not looking to him. They're quarreling with the Lord. They're bitter. They're angry. They're upset. They expected to find water and there is no water. Why did you bring us to this place where there is no water? And rather than recognizing God's sovereign hand and control, rather than recognizing that God always has a means and a purpose in that which he is doing, they respond with quarreling. They grumble. Verse 3 tells us against Moses. And if we are to believe that which Moses says to the Lord later on in verses 5 and 6, they're to the point of wanting to kill him. They want to stone him. They want to go back to Egypt. They charge not only Moses, but as the Lord's servant, they are charging the Lord with bringing them out to the desert simply to kill them. How often, brothers and sisters, do we not, like grumbling, quarreling Israelites, 
fail to see God's rich provisions that he has given to us. Of our glorious exodus that he has provided in the Passover lamb. Of his blessings that rest upon our lives. And yet sometimes the Lord in his sovereign purposes brings us to a Rephidim where there is no water. And how quickly we like Israelites of old grumble and quarrel. Become angry and embittered. Against the Lord's servants? No, really against the Lord himself. This isn't what's supposed to happen. This wasn't what I planned. This isn't what I thought would happen. And we too grumble, quarrel, complain. We too make these places, uh, as Moses names them later, our Masa and our Meribah. Our place of testing and our place of quarreling. And yet, again, here we see the grace of God. Do we not? We have a quarreling, bickering, angry people who are ready to turn around and head back to Egypt. Ready to turn away from the Lord and from his gracious provisions and his covenant. Yet God doesn't destroy them. God doesn't come in some ball of fire and get rid of them all. Now when Moses calls out to him, we read the following. But the Lord said, right? And the Lord said to Moses, he provides He provides a provision. And what is his provision? I want you to note six things that are told us. He is first told, go to the rock. Once again, sometimes the specifics of Scripture are important. No, not sometimes, all the time. For every word is the breathed out word of God. Every word is spirit-inspired. Look at the text again. Verse 5. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. On the rock. Not a rock. Don't just choose a rock. The rock, a specific rock, a designated rock, a chosen rock. A rock that God had before the foundations of the world already ordained for Moses to go to. A rock that was there and will be there for their provision. Go to the rock at Horeb. Horeb and Mount Sinai are basically synonymous to one another. So we're going to the place of the law. Go there and there I will provide. Go there with all of your failures. Go there with your lack of life. Go there with your lack of provisions. Go to the rock. And it's at the rock I am going to provide for you. Go there. Make it public. 
Go to this rock and in a procession. Lead. Lead the elders. Take that staff with you and go to the rock. Now, from what we know, this might have been a journey of upwards of 20 to 25 or more miles. This is not in the sight of the congregation, but it is in sight of the elders of Israel. Go to the rock. Secondly, note, and, and you know, sometimes you can read stories over and over and over and over again, and you think you got the story, and you think you could retell the story, right? There's something in here I had never noticed. Look at that text again. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. God is saying, you're going to find the rock, and when you find the rock, I am going to be standing on the rock. I am going to be there. He's not just saying, go to the rock and strike the rock. He's saying, I am going to be on the rock, and now you strike the rock. Interesting. Because in essence, what Moses is going to be doing is he's going to be striking the Lord. Strike it. And I will be on the rock. My presence will be there. My being will be there. My fullness will be there. I will be on the rock. And then you are to strike it. You are to take that staff that is in your hand. And with that staff, the staff that I have provided, the staff that I have given, that staff is the staff that you are to use to strike it. Now, hold on, okay, because I know some of you are are probably too far ahead already. Because you're thinking Numbers chapter 20. You're, You're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, Moses wasn't supposed to strike the rock. No, that's Numbers chapter 20. That one's coming up. We'll reference that in a few moments. There, Moses in Numbers chapter 20, when they again run out of water, is told to speak to the rock. But Moses, in his anger, goes ahead and strikes the rock. And God says, Moses, no. Now I'm angry with you. Because you did that which you were not supposed to do. Here, the first time, Moses is told specifically to strike the rock. So the rock is to be struck but once. Not over and over and over and over again. You just strike the rock once. And Moses does so. But God says, when you strike the rock, notice what's going to happen. Water shall come out of it. What an oddity. Out of a rock? Water? With God all things are possible. With that which appears to be a hopeless case. I mean, if somebody told you, okay, you're building a house, right? And the well guy comes and and he's going to drive the well. And he looks in your backyard and he says, well, you know... There's really no use in drilling down into the water because you got that big stone in the backyard. I'm just going to drill into the stone and you'll have ample water. You'd think the guy was nuts. Water don't come from a rock. That isn't where it comes from. And yet God, to provide for his people, 
out of that which seems humanly foolish to even contemplate, brings forth water from a rock. And I will give the people water, and they shall drink from it. Now, how are the people going to get the water when the rock is 20 to 25 miles away? It's going to flow all the way to them. God is going to bring the water to them. So abundant, so full, so much that this group of people, two to three million people are going to drink and be satisfied. Thirsty people are going to have all that they need. It's going to flow all the way from the rock to them. And note the end of verse 6. And Moses did so. And Moses did so. I mean, imagine being instructed by the Lord. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But when you are instructed to do something publicly by the Lord, that appears to be utterly foolish. You have to see the faith of his servant here. He goes, takes the staff, goes with the elders, finds the rock, strikes the rock that the Lord is on. And the rock produces water. And Moses did so. Great, great story of God's glorious provisions for his people. But that's, you see, where this becomes the shadow. Yes, that really happened. Yes, that really took place. Yes, this miracle of water from the rock is a factual. Account. Probably many in our society today, even amongst some Christians, would deny it, say, well, you know, it's just a, a, a fairy tale, it's just a made up story to encourage people along life's journey. No, no, this is the breathed out word of God. This happened, this took place. God provided for his people out of what seemed to be an impossible situation. But we have to take this event at Rephidim now, and we have to look on the ground, and we have to look and say, that's but a shadow. That which we have seen is, is but a shadow of a, of a much greater reality, of a much greater truth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 5. And once again, just a reminder, we will return to this again this evening. So if you think I'm leaving something out, 
wait until after tonight to make that criticism. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's verse 4, right? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There's the shadow. This New Testament reference of the Apostle Paul draws us back to where? To Rephidim. It draws us back to this event of Exodus chapter 17. Paul, very clearly, through the Spirit, is telling us the spiritual rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. That rock, the rock, the rock of Horeb. The place where God is going to provide a law that is going to come and condemn. God is going to provide grace. He's going to provide life. He's going to provide an abundance. There. So it's not something that we need to kind of piece together. It's pretty clear. The rock was Christ. So Exodus 17, we we see this shadow, but when we really look at the rock, the rock, Paul is saying, was Christ. God was showing his people already there in the Old Testament. Christ. In a clear, clear picture. But you see, then we have to understand what happened at Rephidim. If the rock is Christ, then there are two things about that rock. One is the rock needs to be struck. For the provision to come, for the water to come, for the gift to come, the rock needs to be struck. That's why going back to that passage, and I will stand on the rock. I, I will be the one. I will be the one struck. And how true that is, is it not, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we reflect upon the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he is the one that is being struck. That he is the one. He The Son of God, Christ, the one who identifies himself as the I am, he is the one that is being struck. Now let me reference Numbers chapter 20 again. That's why the sin of Moses is so great in Numbers 20. 
Because it's like Moses saying, the one sacrifice of Christ is not enough. We need to strike him again. We need to strike him again. If we want the provision, Christ needs to be stricken again, stricken again, and stricken again. That's why we in the Reformed faith look with horror upon what happens in a, in a mass. Because it very clearly is stated, we are, we are killing Christ again. We're striking him down. We're going to lay him on an altar and we're going to kill him. God's anger was so strong. Why? Because you only need to slay the Son of God once. And God will not allow for it to happen again. Even Moses, this servant of God, is going to come under God's judgment in Numbers chapter 20 for striking him again. In our form. This is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. We are not killing Christ. He was struck once and once for all upon that cross. He needs not to be struck again. Because from that one striking is enough provision. That he needs not to be struck again. But there is something else, isn't there? There's not only the the reference that clearly tells us this is Christ in the wilderness, this rock. There's not only the striking that that points us to, well, what is that? It's the death. It's the cross. It's Christ giving himself, emptying himself upon that cross for you and for I. What was the result of the striking? A flow. A flow of water. A flow of life. A flow of what we could reference as living water. A flow that comes all the way to God's people. Down through the times of history. A flow that comes to you and I. A flow that came to a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. I give life-giving water. He who drinks of me will thirst no more. John chapter 4. And I want you to think about who Jesus was saying the flow of the water came to. It came to a sinful Samaritan woman who had had, what, five husbands and the man she's currently shacking up with is not really her husband? I offer you life-giving. This is who Jesus offered it to. This is who that rock emptied himself. This is who the flow, the abundant flow comes to. 
Did you catch in, the, in our responsive reading? Hey, yeah, this meal. That reminds us of the death of Christ and all the blessings that flow from it. Who does it come to? To sinners. To sinners. Like a Samaritan woman. Heaped with her sin. Years of sin behind her. And yet Christ graciously offers her living water. He doesn't say, ma'am, sorry. You're of the wrong ethnic background. You don't get in. No, sorry. He doesn't say, sorry, lady. You're of the wrong sex. You don't get in. He doesn't say, lady, you've committed uh, the, these kinds of sins. I'm, I'm sorry, but this water isn't for you. A Samaritan woman, steeped in sin. But do you see who else it's coming to? Do you see that the flow is coming all the way to you? It's a grumbling complaining, bickering, Israelite? Do you see that it's flowing to you with all of your sin as well? That Christ today from the cross is offering to you living water so that you will thirst no more? Whatever those sins of the past are, no matter the thirst, he provides living water himself, himself. Strike the rock and out of it will flow water, water of life and the people shall drink of it. This is what we as the church, this is what we as believers bring to the world. We bring to them living water. Drink of it. Drink of that which God in His mercy and in His grace provides. It's for today. It's for wherever you are in life at this moment. This living water of Christ. This, this meal is, is but going to be a sign and a seal of that promise. That gospel promise. And I offer, Christ says, living water. Today. How does the psalmist put it? Today, if you hear his voice, do not be like the people at Meribah. Today, if you hear his voice, take the drink of Christ. And you will thirst no more. For these are waters of eternal life, as Jesus tells the woman.
Father, thank you that you led your people to a place called Rephidim that becomes such a clear picture of Christ. And as we now approach your, this table, your table, the Lord's table, Father, as Paul said, the spiritual rock, yes, we look to the spiritual rock. We look to the continual ongoing flow of Christ to fill our greatest need, our need of atonement, our need of reconciliation with you. And you offer us Come and drink of the living water of Christ. It's in his name we pray. And God's people say, Amen.